Open your Bibles now to John chapter 1. Chapter 2, actually. <laughs> chapter 1 was a couple weeks ago. Last week, Lloyd started us in chapter 2. So we're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning as we're walking through this gospel together. And, you know, one of the reasons that we believe God led us to this particular book to study for this season is, you know, as reflected in our mission statement, our whole purpose and goal to become a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and help others do the same. At the center of that is the idea that we're to follow Jesus. So what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? We thought, let's start with looking at the life of Jesus. Let's take a close look at Jesus' life because a follower of Jesus is someone who's committed to obeying what Jesus taught and imitating how Jesus lived. We're to pattern our lives after Jesus Christ. And so we are taking a long look at Jesus Christ over this year as we're in the Gospel of John. I mentioned uh, Lloyd um, began chapter two. I want to mention this about Lloyd real quick, just by way of announcement. Lloyd's about to go on a sabbatical, which we're, we're all so excited for Lloyd because believe it or not, Lloyd's never had a sabbatical. <laughs> However long he's been here, 20 something years, he's never had an actual real sabbatical. So Lloyd's not tired. Lloyd's doing great. We came to Lloyd and we said, Lloyd, You've never had a sabbatical. We want to gift this to you. So we're going to give Lloyd two weeks off where he won't be teaching. He won't be working at all. He's going to be with his family. He's going to be doing some traveling. He's just going to be resting because I'm also telling Lloyd we need another like 10 years or so more at least from you. So uh, be praying for Lloyd during his sabbatical. He'll be back here next week. will be his last week to teach. And then he'll be essentially gone the months of October, November, back in in, in December. Uh, so be thinking of him. And make sure you keep coming, even though Lloyd's not going to be here, okay? <laughs> Just throw that out there. All right. So last week in Lloyd's message, he shared with us the text that covers the first sign of Jesus. Now, what does that mean, the first sign? Sign means a miracle, but it's actually more than that. It's deeper than that in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, as Lloyd reminded us last week, has two parts. The first half is often called the book of signs. There are seven formal signs, official signs that Jesus did that point to his identity, that, that those who have eyes to see could see, look at what God is doing. God's doing something new in the earth, and Jesus Christ is the fullness of God, the Messiah and the Son of God. And so these signs are pointing to Jesus' identity. One of the things that Lloyd shared last week was he pointed out the fact that the water vessels that Jesus used when he transformed the water into wine were Jewish purification vessels. And Lloyd made this statement. He said, we're going to find throughout the gospel that Jesus' words and actions will put him at odds with the religious leaders. So it was no accident that Jesus chose purification vessels for which to uh, transform the water into wine. Next, we're going to see that theme continue. Jesus is going to be at odds with the religious leaders. So take a look at verse 13. We'll start there in chapter two of John. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, let, let's take a look at a little map so that you have an idea of, of where we are. So Cana, which is where he did the first sign, was right here up near Galilee. Jesus is doing most of his ministry up here in Galilee in the northern uh, tip of the uh, Sea of Galilee. Then Jerusalem is down here in the southern part of Israel. Three times a year, all the males in Israel 
who were 13 years and up would go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to go three times a year from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's going to stop in Samaria. We'll get to that uh, next, in a couple of weeks in chapter four. Uh, and he's going to be going to Jerusalem often. Now, one of the reasons that I wanted to show you this is the two regions of Israel sort of represent a metaphor up here in Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry, he found a lot more receptivity to his message than down here in Jerusalem. So when you hear Jesus going to Jerusalem, you can expect conflict. This is where the, the Jews, as uh, we'll talk about today, are, are out to get him, to be honest with you, because they feel threatened. Up here, there's a lot more kind of space and receptivity for him to do his ministry. The other thing I want to know is you'll always hear it said, you go up to Jerusalem, even though it's south from Jesus' perspective on the map. They weren't thinking that way. They were thinking in terms of elevation, not in terms of uh, the, the map geography. So when you hear they went up to Jerusalem, it's because Jerusalem is an elevated city. It's a city on a hill, so you ascend. You always go up to Jerusalem, and then he'll go back down to Galilee, and that's what we'll see in this text. In the temple, so now he's in Jerusalem, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables one of the most dramatic and iconic moments in Jesus' life. This event is recorded in all four Gospels. Interesting, there's some scholarly debate on whether this happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the end of Jesus' ministry, or perhaps it happened twice, once at the beginning and end. John's purpose in his Gospel is not to tell a perfect chronology. His purpose is to build a theological case. So what I believe is most likely is John is taking an event that may have happened near the end of Jesus' ministry, but he's putting it here as he's telling the story at the beginning. And we'll see by the end of the message why John might do that. But th this is the moment where you start to see, whoa, Jesus is not the lamb, but not the kind of lamb of God that I was picturing. <laughs> Jesus is swinging a whip. Jesus is overturning tables. Jesus is causing a ruckus. He's a little bit more like Indiana Jones than the Lamb of God in this particular text. Now, why was Jesus acting so harshly? I want you to see something, the, the way the temple was laid out. So, so this is a representation of the temple at the time of Jesus. Now, the, the actual temple structure is right here in the middle. Only Jews could go past this wall right here. And in fact, there, were, there was another hierarchy. You know, women could go this far, Jewish men could go a little further, and then only priests could actually go in here. And only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies, which was back here in number one, and that was just once a year in the Day of Atonement. But here's what I want to show you. There was this large space outside the temple proper called the courtyard of the Gentiles, or the Gentiles' courtyard. This was the space where these merchants had set up these booths, these tables, where they were um, uh, changing the, the currency from the different nationalities. They were selling the, the animals, the sacrificial animals. And this is what Jesus found when he went up into this space. Now, this is a massive space. Look down here. Here's a football field, okay, compared to the temple. So look at all this space around it. This is a, an incredibly large outdoor area uh, that was built by Herod uh, just before the time of Jesus. This would have been covered with a bizarre-like 
atmosphere, like the buying and selling and the merchants and all of these kinds of things. So, so this is what Jesus finds when he goes up and he starts kicking out the animals. He uses a whip. You know, how, what an interesting detail. We don't learn in the other gospels that Jesus used a whip. I think it's most likely because he, he had to chase away the animals. You know, what, what was his other alternative? Just clap his hands like, you know, shoo, ox. You know, ox isn't going to move from that. But an ox is going to get going with, with a whip. So this is Jesus taking charge of the temple complex. Now, last thing I want you to see on this diagram if Jesus cuts off the supply of animals, which he did temporarily when he chased everybody out, there can be no sacrifice. And if there can be no sacrifice, there can be no worship. Because from the Hebrew perspective, worship equals sacrifice. Why would Jesus shut down worship at the temple? This doesn't really seem to make any sense. The temple was so much more than our church building, for example. There was only one temple in Israel. There were synagogues where they would learn the scriptures and pray and have other community events, but there was only one place of worship, only one temple in all of the land, and everybody would come to it. Let's talk about the reason, the why, that Jesus would cut off worship at the temple. Remember, everything Jesus did was intentional. Look at verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There, there's, there's the reason. Underline it if you have a pencil or pen. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. We'll talk more about that in a moment. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quotation from Psalm 69. And they, they recognized then, oh, wow. That's what the psalmist was talking about. Literal zeal, energy, desire for the purity of the temple. We're seeing that played out now in Jesus, who they are coming to believe is the promised Messiah. Note what Jesus calls the temple. My father's house. That is so significant. No one else called it that. They called it the house of God or the house of the Father, maybe, but they would not call it my Father's house. Jesus was asserting his unique identity as the only Son of God. He's claiming to have a special connection to God the Father that would enable him to act on the Father's behalf. So here's an illustration for all of you that, that like to hunt, okay? I, I don't hunt, but I've got friends who hunt. Imagine you're hunting deer. There's no deer on the property that you're hunting in, and you know the deer are, are over here, and it's across the property line, but you're like, oh, that's a huge piece of property over there. I don't think they'll, they'll mind or even notice if we just kind of waltz across the property line and, and hunt a little bit over here. And So let's say you kind of walk across the property line, and before you know it, a pickup truck pulls in right behind you, and a guy rolls down the window and he says, excuse me, this is my father's property. It's, it's our family's property and we don't allow hunting here. That's the illustration. That's the idea. The son of the father in the family has shown up and he's saying, this is not intended for that. Don't make this place a house of trade. And he's speaking here with authority because he's the son of the father. Now, why was the temple 
not supposed to be a place of trade. Jesus was not against buying and selling. There's nothing wrong with buying and selling if it's done justly. But the temple was not to be a place of trade because that's not its design. That's not its purpose. Jesus is saying, you're using it for the wrong thing. I want you to remember where all the booths were set up, where all the selling was happening in the court of Gentiles. That's as close as the nations could get to the house of God. And they were being crowded out by all this commerce. We get a clue in Mark's account of this event. Here's what what we read in Mark chapter 11. This is Jesus' words again. So Jesus would have said this at this event, not recorded by John, but recorded by Mark. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You've made it into a den of robbers. Some people say, oh, he's just mad that they were charging absorbent fees for the money changing, that they weren't changing it uh, justly. That's not what it says. Robbers here, I think, was the idea of of, of you're, you're hoarding for yourself the glory of God, you're keeping the nations out. It's meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. The temple was meant to be a light to the Gentiles. One more point on this before we move on. Have you thought about what it must have been like to be God in a body? Just consider this for a moment. From Jesus' perspective, he'd come to earth to live amongst all the stuff that goes on here. All the noise, all the busyness, all all the selfishness, all the cruelty, the the climbing over one another and the competitiveness and the putting each other down and, and taking advantage of of other people's weaknesses. He, he lived in the midst of all this. He, he saw it all. He must have felt all that more deeply than you and I could ever feel. And in the midst of all the mess, there's supposed to be one sacred place on all the earth that human beings can come near to God and interact with God. Jesus did what he did because the temple had lost its way. The temple was no longer what it was intended for. It was no longer the set-apart sacred place where God's presence could be known by all the nations. The heartbeat of Judaism needed to be cleansed. So we get to verse 18, and, and here's where the conflict with the Jews begins. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Here's what they're asking. Where's your sheriff's badge? You know, Jesus came in and he acted like he owned the place. Show us your authentication. Prove that you have the authority to do this. Now, notice they asked for a sign. Key word in John. It's the same word that Lloyd talked about last week. The Greek word is semion. It's the idea of the seven signs, and the signs are designed to point to the identity 
of the Son of God. The first sign in Cana was just for the disciples. Now the religious leaders, the, the religious police, which is essentially who these people were, they're asking for a sign. And if you're the reader, you're thinking, just wait for this. I don't know what Jesus got, but he's got something good. Like he turned the water into wine last week and this week he's gonna do something miraculous. They're gonna get a sign all right. Let's see how Jesus answers. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Just pause right there. We'll, we'll finish the text in a moment. And what's more, Jesus, what's next? What's the miracle that you're going to do? All he does is this. All, all he says, destroy this temple. And you can imagine how bizarre that sounded to the religious leaders. They don't know what he's talking about. The only temple they see is the big structure behind Jesus as he's speaking. And, and so they, they respond how you, exactly how you'd expect them to respond. Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? By the way, in the Greek, the, the word you is in the emphatic position at the beginning of the phrase. So it's like you will raise it up. It's like they're kind of mocking him here. You think you can do this? Now, John steps in as the narrator, verse 21, 22, and tells us what's really going on. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, this is actually spectacular. Let me explain why, why I think this is spectacular. Religious leaders wanted a sign. Jesus gives them one, but it's not one they want. It's a future sign, and it's not actually meant for them. It's meant for the disciples. Later on, the disciples will put two and two together, and they will believe. Jesus is being very cryptic here, and he's being very cryptic for a reason. He, he knows, he knows that it is not yet his time. And as soon as the religious leaders set their minds and their hearts toward destroying Jesus, the time is limited, and it is not yet his time. So he gives this very interesting cryptic answer. Now, do you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Nathaniel and Jesus meets Nathaniel and he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, what? You saw me under the fig tree? You must be the Messiah. And Jesus is like, whoa, you believe from that? You will see greater things than this. You will see the angels ascending and descending on me. So the son of man, which, which Jesus always was talking about himself when he says the son of man. And the way we explained that was, this is a reference to Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament. Jacob's ladder was a place that Jacob understood when he saw this vision of the ladder. This is the gateway of heaven. This is the connection between heaven and earth. This is the house of God. And he names the place Bethel. 
So Jesus in chapter one had told his disciples, I'm the true temple. I'm the place where heaven and earth meet. I'm the real house of God. So then here, chapter two, he says, destroy this temple, talking about himself, his body. In three days, I will raise it up. And by the way, one of the reasons that this passage is so significant, it's the first reference in John to Jesus' death. So Jesus is dropping breadcrumbs for his disciples to get, but he is veiling from the religious leaders. And he's doing this intentionally. He actually does this all the time. It's why he told parables. His disciples came up to him one time and were like, why are you always talking in parables? Why don't you just speak plainly? Why are you using parables? And you know what Jesus tells them? He says, I speak in parables so that those who have eyes to see and ears to hear will see and understand. And those who don't will not. That seems strange to us, but Jesus has a plan. And the plan is unfolding little by little. And right now, he's only interested in his disciples coming to faith in him, believing in him. But there will be a sign later that will be for everyone to see. The ultimate sign, his resurrection, that all the others will point to. And of course, we'll get there toward the end of the Gospel of John. All right, let's finish our text because I've got some things that I want to talk about in terms of application. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, that's good, right? Listen to this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Wow. What does this mean Jesus did not entrust himself to them? Here's the problem. Jesus could see beneath the surface, and he knew their intention was not to receive him on his terms. Jesus knew the intention of the hearts of the crowd of people was to make a political figure of him, was to rush him up on the throne, to kick out the Romans. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted. And the reason we know this is because in John chapter six, so just a a few short chapters later, after he feeds the 5,000, that's exactly what the crowd tries to do. They try to force him to be king and he has to escape from their adulation and go be by himself because he didn't come to be a political figure. So I want you to think about this dilemma Jesus was in. He, on the one side, he faced the religious leaders who wanted to discredit him. On the other side, he faced the crowds who wanted to make a political figure of him. What both groups had in common was the state of their hearts. For he himself knew what was in man? What, what is in man or, or, or woman, you know? <laughs> the brokenness of our hearts, the filth, the, the corruption of our hearts. Jeremiah 17, great reference for this. Verses nine and 10. The heart of mankind is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can know it? That's what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. 
Jesus knew it. He himself knew what was in man. The very next verse, Jeremiah 17, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Jesus is the Lord. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Jesus understood the state of mankind's heart, so he knew he could not entrust himself to them. Think about it this way. Jesus knew that as long as the hearts of mankind were desperately sick, we could never receive him as the kind of king he came to be. In other words, Jesus knows he can't be our king until he cleanses our hearts. This is where the passage exploded for me this week when I started thinking about how John structured this and the reason why John put the cleansing of the temple narrative here. Think about the passage in three parts. There's three paragraphs to it in, in, in the text. Part one, the temple needs cleansing. Part three, human hearts need cleansing. And in the middle, you have Jesus saying, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. In other words, I will pay the price for the cleansing that is needed. And it won't stop just with the cleansing of the temple, which I have done today. He's saying it needs to go all the way to the hearts of mankind. And I will not stop until I have cleansed that temple, Jesus is saying. Now, Paul picks up on this theme in Ephesians chapter two, and I want you to see this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see how this is fitting together? Jesus came to cleanse more than the Jerusalem temple. He claimed he came to cleanse the hearts of mankind so that we could become a new temple. In God's relationship with the Hebrew people, he said, I want you to build me a house. He told, he told Solomon, build me a house, a, a, a sacred space where I will be present and mankind can interact with me. Mankind defiled that house. So God sent his son. And God said, I myself will be the temple. I will come as the intersection between heaven and earth, Jacob's ladder, the true temple, the gateway to God. I will come and be the temple. And mankind destroyed that temple. But God raised it up. And through the resurrection of Jesus, guys, he didn't just raise up the body of Christ, literally. He raised up the body of Christ's 
spiritually. And we are the body of Christ. We are now the dwelling place of God. We are now the temple. And all who put their faith in Jesus Christ receive the cleansing of the temple, the cleansing of their own hearts so that they can join this structure, which is the church. This is such a rich passage. And I want to apply it to us. Here's where it gets really personal. We are all like the Jerusalem temple. In this way, Jesus' desire is to cleanse us from the inside out and take up residence in us. That's Jesus' desire. What, What was he doing at the Jerusalem temple? He was cleansing it from the inside out. Why? Because God lived there. What's he wanting to do in you? He wants to cleanse you from the inside out because God wants to live there. Now, remember Jesus knows what is in each person. That means he knows what is in your heart. What does it mean when I say to you this morning, Jesus wants to cleanse your heart? What, what, what does that mean? I, it's not just a sweet sounding sentiment. You know, Jesus wants to cleanse my heart. No, no, no. Consider this, but three things I think this means. Jesus wants to cleanse your heart. It means he has authority over it. It means there are things there that don't belong. And it means he wants to reclaim it for his intended purpose. This is straight from our text of what he did with the Jerusalem temple. He, he, he put his authority over it. He, he, he removed the things that didn't belong and he reclaimed it for its intended purpose. This is what Jesus wants to do in your heart. Now, let's just start with the authority as we unpack this just for a minute or two before we close. That everything starts with God's authority over your heart. The sad thing is what's true about me, I think this is true of all of us to a certain extent, is we're just like the religious leaders of Jerusalem. In that, Jesus comes and he begins to do something disruptive. He begins to do something hard inside of here and we say, what authority do you have, Jesus, to bring something disruptive like this into my life? What authority do you have, Jesus, that you would stake claim over me Jesus brings disruption into our lives just like a farmer brings disruption to the dirt. And the sooner we recognize his authority and and are willing to open our hands to it, the sooner things start growing inside. He has authority over your heart. And number two, there are things there that don't belong. And, and this is just true. It's true for me. It's true for you. I don't, I don't know if you've been walking with Jesus seven days or 70 years, but I know there are things in there that don't belong. Uh, 
I've heard this little phrase that, that I really like, and it comes in the context of, of when God starts to do a work inside of you, and, and sometimes some ugly things start to come out. It's like maybe there's areas of your life that in, in sin, and, and, and God just exposes that somehow. You know, you, you, you get caught, or you just get disrupted in some way. And, and here's what's true. Exposure is an act of grace. Exposure is an act of grace. It was God's grace that Jesus walked up onto that temple platform in the first century with a whip. Do you understand this? It was for the good of his people. It was for the good of the nations. Exposure is an act of grace. And, and, and here's the, the blessing. Confession is the means by which we are cleansed. First John 1, 9. Confess your sins to the Lord. He is faithful and just and will forgive all your unrighteousness. We need to start living confessionally with God, walking in the light with one another as well. There are things in our hearts that don't belong. Jesus wants to remove them. And finally, he wants to reclaim your heart for his intended purpose. This is where it gets really exciting to me. Think about how kind-hearted God is that he wants to live in you. There is nothing more loving there's nothing more intimate. He wants to dwell in you. So Jesus doesn't want you to change so that you'll become a better person. Like he's not interested in you becoming a little better version of yourself. He wants to change you so that he can manifest himself through you. So that he can take up residence and the glory of Christ will begin to be shown through you because Jesus was man fully alive. He has plans for his glory to flow through you that you can only imagine. He wants to reclaim your heart for his intended purpose. I want to give you just a minute now in quiet to pray, reflect on these things. Use this time to confess sin, to express your agreement with Jesus' authority over you, if you're able to say that, and ask him to reclaim your heart for his intended use. Let's pray. As we continue our response to God's word, I want to invite you to take the communion elements that you received when you came in the room. If you didn't pick them up, feel free to get up and go grab one. I don't want you to miss out 
on this part of our worship service, if you're a believer of Jesus, let, let, me, let me just say this about these elements. You know, sometimes I come across some misunderstanding out there that people think, oh, I can't take communion because there's things that are not okay in my life. And I always appreciate that sentiment because I think, okay, there's an awareness there. But I don't want you to go so far as to think you have to be perfect in order to receive communion. Communion is for sinful people. Communion is for hearts that need to be cleansed because what it does is it's, it's pointing us, it's representative of the cleansing that Jesus provided for you. And he's calling you to faith. On the other hand, I want to say this. If you're someone right now and just where you are in your own journey is you, you say, I have no interest in Jesus having authority over my heart. Then I don't think this is for you today. And I don't say that in judgment. I just say that because your heart's not in a posture to receive. But for all of us, who would say, by God's grace, there's some softness in here somewhere. There's an openness to, to allowing Jesus in to do some cleansing work inside, to throw some things out that don't belong, to, re to reclaim my heart for his purpose. What a great reminder that that is indeed the work that he is doing. And so you hold in your hands this token, this representation of the body broken for you eat it with joy in remembrance of him. Peel back the foil layer on the cup and let me just say very briefly before we drink the cup together, you know, what does the cup represent? It represents the blood of Jesus. What's the, what's the meaning behind the blood of Jesus? The cleansing of our sins. The cleansing of our hearts that need help. So for anyone, anyone hearing my voice who has put your trust in Jesus Christ for the cleansing of your sins, drink with joy in remembrance of him. Let's stand to our feet and respond in song.